Uh, Mark chapter 10, and let's look at verse 17. Mark chapter 10 and verse 17, and um, I just want to talk about three things this morning. Number one, the unreasonable demand of God. And we're talking about the love of God here, okay? Number one, the unreasonable demand of God, okay? And if if, uh, the kids are dismissed. The second thing I just want to talk about is the one thing that God wants, the one thing that God wants from you, that one thing. And then third thing is satisfaction as a believer can only come when we surrender, when we surrender. Satisfaction equals surrender. So let's just look at Mark chapter 10. And if you don't have a Bible, um, we can, someone can run to my office and we can grab some Bibles there if you, if you need one. Okay. It's okay if you, if you don't have it, it's fine, no problem. Mark chapter 10, let's look at verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Why do you call me good? Don't you love Jesus' answers? Like, we ask God a question. He's like, No, no, there's a deeper question here. And he's always hitting the deeper questions. And, and he says, Why do you call me good? Um, and no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, verse 19. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Your, uh, do not defraud. Honor your, mo- your father and mother. And then in verse 20, the rich young ruler, the rich young man says to him, <clears throat> Teacher, I've done all of these things I've kept from, uh, all these things I've kept from my youth. Jesus is talking to a young, he's a young man, he's rich, and he's got authority. He's got it all in his life. He's got those three things. But he doesn't have one thing, and he doesn't have this. He doesn't have eternal life. And so Jesus here is asking him, he's saying, well, you know the law. And then he says, I've done these things. And Jesus knows he hasn't done these things because um, every one of these areas, we fail at least on the, on the mental level, on the, uh, in our mind. And Jesus said to him, um, I'm sorry, yeah, and Jesus looking at him, verse 21, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I just want to talk about a few things here about the love of God. And for those that haven't heard the series, this is what we've said so far. Is that number one, when we read the Bible and when it talks about us loving God, it always refers to God loving us first. And we call that first love. Because there was no love in us, there was nothing in us that, saw, that was seeking after God. I think the message many times in churches across the world, we can err so easily because we're talking about what appeals to our flesh. Like, give me a program. The flesh, our sin nature wants a program. Like, give me a program so that I can feel good about myself. Um, tell me what I can do. Tell me where to give my money so that I can feel good about giving my money to something. And, and Jesus is like, I don't want to, that's, None of, I've crucified all of that. I want, first of all, to, you to understand that I loved you first. I loved you first. And that's where our day starts. That's our zero point. That's where we start. That's our baseline every morning that I do not love God. Wake up in the morning. I'm a pastor. You know, Robert's telling me, like, you know, he's telling us how, you know, they're preparing to do the marriage series and there's attacks. It happens all the time. Sunday mornings, coming to church, you know. And it's like you come to church and you're thinking, as a pastor, am I really the right guy to be pastoring? You know, like all this warfare going on. And, it's, and it really is, a, by the way, sig- a signature of God's presence in your life is warfare. 
It's just war. It's just a continual, and it also a signature of the presence of God in your life is the peace of God. That we can have peace and joy in the midst of all this warfare. Um, and we talked about the first love of God. And so when you, when you come to church or when you think about your Christian life or when you think about your faith, do not look at it from the perspective of what you don't have. Because we, we will always be failing. We will always not have enough. Look at what God first did. It is not that we loved him, John is saying to these, to these scattered churches across the uh, the Roman Empire. He says, not that you first loved God, but that God first loved you. Mm-hmm. That God first loved you. And if we don't start our Christianity with that, then we're, everything that we're doing is going to be deficit motivation. We're going to be looking for significance from people, from situations, from our careers, uh, from, from our circumstances. And even people can get into ministry because they don't, see, they don't sense the sense of significance. And they try to find it in ministry. And so three things I just want to talk about, about the, the, the unusual love of God here in this, in this chapter, in these verses that we just read. Number one, God doesn't really, and this is something that we said at the beginning, God is not demanding you to surrender your rights only in the areas of what you think is selfish. Like, you know, when, when God speaks to us and when we sense that call, when we sense that challenge from God, we're like, okay, I'm going to give this up for God. And how many know what Lent is, right? And, and I think people in here really celebrate it a lot, right? I mean, we never really celebrated it back home. But Lent is this thing where during Lent, somebody's asking you, what are you going to be giving up, right? How many have ever had that question? What are you going to be giving up? Well, I'm going to be giving up um, candy bars, or I'm going to be giving up um, this or that, or I'm going to be giving up Netflix, or I'm going to be giving it. And it's like these, you know, what we think are areas of selfishness are just the ones that we can consciously identify. There is so much selfishness there that you and I don't even realize about. And so you you and I cannot properly assess the state of our Christianity outside of the word of God and outside of what God is saying. We cannot. We just cannot. Paul said, I don't judge myself. It is the Lord that judges me. And so it is not in the areas that we think that are just selfish. God is asking for the whole heart. The whole thing. He said, I just don't want this. I don't want that. He wants the whole thing. I was thinking this morning how the American culture, I think there's such a spirit of Martha spirit. Remember Martha and Mary? And Martha is, I almost said Marcia. Martha is running around. And she is so busy serving Christ in the household. And she, through her service and her passive-aggressive attitude, is trying to project on people how busy she is and how everybody else is not busy. And then there's Mary over there just sitting and listening to Jesus, uh, being occupied with Christ and, and seeing, seeing Christ as the center of the household. And, and Martha is just running around. We in the United States and just generally in Christianity have such a Martha spirit because we're running around cumbered about. We are so weighed down with stuff that do not matter. It just doesn't matter. Stuff that we think is important, and it just does not matter. Why? Because in the end, it just all burns up. And the only thing that will stand and the only thing that will remain is they that do the will of God. Okay? And so I'm just saying here, like, like um, the love of God here demands, demands it all. You know, the rich young ruler, he was very calculative, and he was, uh, he was calculating uh, how much abandonment would cost in his life. And... And, um, and he was really afraid about losing things. 
he had a lot of assets. I don't know if you ever had any financial counseling. There's this word assets that come up. What are your assets? What are your assets? What do you have that you've worked hard for that now you own? What are your assets? And the rich young ruler had too many assets that he was afraid to lose. And you know something that sometimes when we hear this unreasonable demand of Christ, go sell all that you have and don't sell it to, don't, I mean, go get, go sell, give away to the, and give it to the poor. And you know, somebody could look at the poor and say, well, these are just, these are people, and this is the attitude that we live in today, that somebody's poor because, oh, well, they're poor because they're make, they make bad financial decisions. They're not good stewards. Uh, they're just wrecked in their life. They're, they're a mess. And why would I give my money to them? Because they're just, in, 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 in three days, it's going to be all spent, and they're not going to be able to, Jesus said, give it to the poor anyway. Why? Because the issue here is, is that there's something that's more important in the eyes of Christ, and as Christ is speaking to this rich young ruler, he said, give it all, and then, then follow me. And I want to get back to that in a second. If we understood the assets, the true assets that you and I have, we're not afraid to lose those. The love of God, the promises, the grace of God, our position in Christ, uh, the body of Christ, godly friendships, decisions that you and I make for Jesus Christ because he's worth it. These are assets that we never, ever lose. And that's why we can live so, I don't want to say reckless, but we can live so, so like boldly and so courageously because the assets that the world worries about, we're not worried about. Because you know what? All the assets, (coughs) if you live the grace life, everything in your life is grace. You didn't earn it. You couldn't achieve it. And guess what? You, You and I can't even maintain it. You know what I'm saying? Like, we have these things, and we, could, we can't even maintain it because we didn't earn it. And so God gives, he takes away, he gives, he takes away. And the true assets in our life are something that can never be lost. And that's why we can live boldly. We can give courageously. We can pray without ceasing. We can serve without fear. And we can enter into relationship, and we can enter into ministry not being afraid. Because the, the rich young ruler, and here's the, here's the world. I don't know... Um, the, you know, the more and more p- resources that people seem to have, the more and more fear and control there seems to be in their life. You know, mm-hmm. it just seems to be more and more. I mean, and, and you go down that road of acquiring and, and then you realize more and more and more that this could be gone in just a month. The whole thing could be gone. But, you know, it seems like when we lived in Eastern Europe and um, we were doing missionary work in Poland and Ukraine, that was during a time where communism had done its thing and left and just wrecked the nation and all the and the and the only people that had any wealth and privilege and wealth distribution was actually the party, the communist party, the elite, and nobody else had anything else because it was stolen from the people. And these people had nothing. These people had nothing. They were broke. And we would go visit their home and they would they would take everything out of their fridge and just make this huge meal like we've never eaten before. I mean so much food. And then you realize, like, that was all their food. But they would do this gladly because they didn't own anything anyway. Now, I'm not saying that you and I have to be poor to be spiritual people. But I'm saying that holding on to things loosely, not tightly, not holding on to things that have handles. And if God removes something, we just say, okay, because it's not mine. This is not my church, by the way. Ever Grace is not my church. It's not my church. And if God adds something, great. If God takes away something, it's great. I'm not in control. It is the Lord's church. 
And you know something, if the Lord wants to do something, he does something. And I think the best thing to do is that, because I didn't, there's, you know, Pastor Belly says this, you know, like, I don't have nails in my hands. I didn't die for the church. This is not my church. You know, like, I didn't suffer for the church. I didn't lay down my life. I haven't bled for the church, maybe a little bit when I was doing some construction work in Philadelphia when we were doing, I, I cut my hand and I was bleeding. But I did not die for the church. This is not my church. We hold on to things lightly. And we, that way we understand and we appreciate every single thing that we have. And you know something? Here's the point. The first thing is, is that God's demand is unreasonable. It's unreasonable. It's impossible. It's impossible for us. Hey, I want you to go, go sell your house. Go sell your car. Go do this. Go do that. I want you to give everything up. And I don't know who in this room would do that. Maybe we, some of us would. But it's a very kind of an unreasonable, illogical, uh, kind of a crazy request. And we like to talk about that as Christians, but do we do that? And, and the point is, is that even if, even if that rich young ruler sold everything and sold it all and left. And it's funny because Jesus says to Zacchaeus, go sell half of what you have. He, goes to, he says to the rich young ruler, go sell 100%. So the percentage really doesn't matter to God. God is after one thing. Even if we gave it all, it would not be enough, right? It wouldn't be enough. Why? Because God is actually only asking for one thing. And this is the second thing I want to mention here. God is only asking for one thing for you and I. The rich young ruler didn't have it. He says, one thing you lack. You're lacking one thing. You got it all, man. You got wealth. You've got influence. You've got social status. You're, you're good looking. You got assets all over the place, and yet you're lacking one thing because you're coming to me asking the big question What must I do to have eternal life? Where's my satisfaction? Where's my joy? Where's my peace at night? I can lay down in my bed, and, and whether I have a lot or I don't have a lot, I have God. I have, I, have my, I have the plan of God, I have the promises of God. And the rich young ruler didn't have that. Why? Because there's one thing that he was holding on to, and that was his heart. That was his heart. One thing that Jesus is asking is not for all of our stuff. He doesn't need our stuff. You know, it's funny because, you know, when, when we live as guilty Christians and we don't know how to relate to our blessings because we're not living in grace, when you live in the grace of God, you can relate to your blessings correctly. Mm-hmm. And when we're living in blessings, when we understand the grace of God, we're understanding that it's all grace in my life. And we, when we live that way... Um, we are understanding that we don't own anything, and it's okay whether I have it or not. And Jesus is saying, "I want to. I want to. I want you to. I want to give you. I want. I want one thing. I don't want all your stuff." God is not. Jesus is not looking for a yard sale in our life. He's not looking for our charity. He's not looking for. You know, sometimes as guilty Christians, we can just say, hey, "You know what? I need to give to something so I can feel better for myself." That's great, and I'm sure that the person receiving that will be blessed. But there's no blessing in that for you as a Christian. Um, and so he wants one thing. And when we get the one thing right, everything else is right. And we can lose it all. We can have it all. When we get the one thing right, and that is, the one thing is, in Proverbs 23, verse 26, my son, give me your heart, and you will observe my ways. You want to see God move in your life? Just give me your heart. Don't try to serve him. Don't try to do stuff for him. Don't try to give him stuff. Don't try to be amazing. Don't try to do some radical thing. Just give him your heart. Just say, I want it. God, I'm giving you my heart. What does that mean? I want to talk about that practically here in a minute. Give God your heart. Let's back up a little bit. Where else in the Bible does it say that? 
Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And by the way, this is the first of the Ten Commandments. Okay, so if you're a Ten Commandment person, you're going to like this. The first of the Ten Commandments is this, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your might. First the heart, then the soul, and then the strength. And there's three parts of us. The heart, that, the heart is that part of us. It's like, we've said it before, it's like the soil in the ground. It's where the, the, the soul tree is planted into. And, it's, and the soul has its roots that go down into that soil of the heart. And if the heart is the new heart, the healthy heart, then every aspect of the five parts of our soul is going to be healthy. Our mind, our emotions, our conscience, our, self, our self-image, and our, um, our emotions. I think I said that right. Did I, miss, did I miss one of those? You should love the Lord your God with all your heart. Start with the heart. Lord, just say, God, I don't love you. So I don't love you the way I should. It doesn't mean that I have to love you harder. And that's us. That's, that's, that's carnal Christianity. we got to be more intentional about stuff. Well, yeah, true. But it first got to start with first love. And then all the intention comes in. Then, all the, then, the, then the motivation and then, then the will and the desire to do of his good pleasure is happening because he has the core. He has the core. He has our heart. And when we give him our heart, we realize, like in that, that hymn, here is my heart, Lord, take it, seal it for your courts above, because my heart is prone to wander. My heart is prone to wander. God, here, take it, seal it for your courts above. And when we do that, it's like Proverbs chapter 16, it says, acknowledge the Lord, put God first, and then all of your ways are going to be established. Your footsteps are going to be established. We wrestle with so many problems in our head, in our thought life, and in our, in our behavior, because the heart the heart, is, the heart is off. The heart is not right. And then the prayer in the Old Testament is, God, give me a right heart. And he has given us that. Proverbs, uh, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 17, was it? Pastor Adam yesterday? Jeremiah 17, 20, I think it is, that the Lord, give, the Lord I will give you a heart that will, that will know me. God gives us a heart that's crying out to God. You and I have a spirit inside of us, and that's the Holy Spirit. And that spirit's praying. When you're sleeping, when we're doing the dishes, when we're doing our thing, that Holy Spirit inside of us is praying and crying out to God. And sometimes if we were to get quiet and just listen to God and listen to the Holy Spirit, we would hear him praying in our heart. And then David said this in Psalm 86, verse 11. Correct me if that's wrong. Um, Psalm 86, 11, it says, Unify my heart that I would fear your name. God, I have a divided heart. Unify that so that I might fear your name. And how does that unification happen? When we understand the first love of Christ, when God enraptures us, when we get on our knees at the cross and we look at that cross and we realize, my God, it was for me. It was for me that he died. It was not just for the whole world and the masses of people and all the good people out there, but it was for me, broken me. And where it says in the old hymn, it says that love and sorrow and blood mixed together flowed down. It was Christ that died for us. And it's so beautiful. Like, Christ died for you and I. And when that, that should heal all of our guilt complexes and our anxieties and all these things that we face and these weird motivations that we have that we don't even understand because he wants one thing, and that is that we would give God our heart because when we have the heart right, the soul has got the right foundation, and then we have strength. We have strength that we didn't realize, we didn't realize what we had. We want to throw in the towel, and we have that strength. And so we'll look at this here. When Jesus says to the rich young ruler, go back to that verse, Jesus is saying to the rich young ruler, he says, 
Uh, what does he say at first before he gives him the command? What does he say? Anybody? What does it say there? Anybody? This, loved him. Jesus looked at him and what? Loved him. Whoa. Did you ever see that before? Jesus looks at this lost kid. You know, maybe it's like a kid, one of these Woodlands kids. When he turns 16, he's got a brand new Mustang, you know? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, this is a lot of wealth here. And he looks at this kid and he says, I, I mean, he loved him. And that Greek word there is agape. He self-sacrificially loved this kid. And Jesus looks at this kid and his vanity and his waist and and uh, his style and everything, his trend and cologne and everything. What I mean, we, when we see them, we look at them and do we love them? Jesus looks at this teenager, this young kid. Maybe he was early 20s or not even 20 yet. And he says, I, I love this kid. I love him. I love this kid. And he says, one thing you lack, man. One thing you lack, son. And it's this. The thing you're lacking is if you understood what it was, you would just you would let go of all this stuff, all these assets that you think are so important for you. You'd let go of the addictions. You'd let go of all the of all the secret stuff that's going on in the mind. You'd let it go because you would find the treasure that is in Jesus Christ. And he says he looked at him and he loved him. Then there's the command. And then what happens after the command? What's he say at the end of the command? It's really part of the part of the command, but it's the end of the command. It says, and follow me. And follow me. Jesus is on both ends of that command. Jesus is on, he's just, he's got, on every command that he gives to you and I as a believer, he is the beginning of it and he's the end of it. He said he loves, he looked at him and loved him and he said, just follow me. Just follow me. I think when we let, when we let things go and we let things go, there's no longer that wrestling and that, and that battle that's going on. And he says, just follow me. Follow me. And I love that. I wonder, as Christians, how much of our Christianity is just following Christ, or, or is it just busy work that doesn't really mean much? In the, in the end, when we are older and, and we were elderly and we can't really do much anymore, how much of that is really truly important? I think as we get older and as the years we age, and there's nobody old in this room, but if we get, and when we get to, when we begin to age, well, you know what becomes more and more important to us? Our faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Our faith in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus becomes the core and the center of everything that we want and that we desire. And then the last thing I want to just share here is that surrender is satisfaction. Surrendering is satisfaction. Hudson Taylor said this, The secret discontentment that we struggle with can be traced to a lack of surrender. The secret discontentment that we have in our heart, the secret discontented heart, can be traced back to the fact that we have not surrendered. A.W. Tozer said this, and I love this, the reason why many are still troubled, still seeking, still making little progress forward is because they haven't yet come to the end of themselves. We are still trying to give orders. We are still trying to interfere with God's work, and we're still trying to control. And God can't work. And that we... and. Here's another thing that William Booth said. And by the way, William Booth, beautiful man of God, he started Salvation Harmony. He said this. He said, uh, the greatness of a man's power is the measure of his surrender. Wow. So the measure that we surrender is the measure that we are powerful people. The world will say something else. You've got to stand up and, for your rights. You've got to make your case. You've got to lawyer up. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. 
Jesus here is saying that surrender. And by the way, what is surrender? Is it a one-time thing where I pray the I pray the sinner's prayer and then I'm good for the rest of my life? Moment by moment. Moment by exactly. Man, you read my moment notes here. Moment, day by day, surrender. It's a day I wake up in the morning, Lord, I surrender. I got up this morning and I was just half awake and I was just like, God, I just surrender to you. Nothing else matters. It's just all just ridiculousness. People come and go. It's okay. I just, I got Jesus and I want to live for Jesus today. And that's what matters to me. Moment by moment, surrender is a daily ritual. Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot was the wife or is the wife. Is she still alive? I don't know. Uh, was married to Jim Elliott, the missionary to Central America, Ecuador, who lost his life ministering to the Indians there. Um, he was shot through with multiple arrows, and as he was being shot with arrows, uh, every time he'd get hit with an arrow, he's saying, Jesus loves you, God loves you, and then he goes down and he dies. Then his wife later on goes back, forgives the Indians, and then ministers to them. Just an amazing story. If you ever get a chance to read Elizabeth Elliott's story, it's amazing. And she said this, one does not surrender a life in an instant. That which is lifelong can only be surrendered in a lifetime. It's a moment-by-moment surrender. It's a moment-by-moment surrender. Um, I want to close with this, is that there's two reactions to surrender. There's two reactions that when Jesus says, go sell all you got and, and, and follow me. And when he says that, there's one of two reactions that we can get. Number one, fear. If I surrender all, where is it going to take me? I don't want to really lose my assets. We already talked about that. The second thing is offense, getting offended. You know, it's funny how we process offense as Christians, you know? I mean, I think Texas is like this, you know? I think up north, northeast, and some parts of Europe, people are just going to tell you, I'm offended, I'm angry at you, and, I, you know, they're just going to let you, let you. I think here, people are like, hey, you're a great man, and you never see him again. Where'd they go? I don't know. I don't know what happened. They're so diplomatically offended. (laughs) And that's the way it is. You know, it's like, and that's okay. I mean, I guess, you know. I mean, John 6, many turned back and followed him no more. Jesus is saying, I want intimacy with you. I want you to eat my my flesh and my blood. I want you to live in the finished work, sacrifice of my life. And I want you to work and I want intimacy. I want the whole thing. I don't want just your activity and your words. I want your heart. And I want every thought moment by moment. And, you know, so that's offensive for some people. That's just, no, that's, that's not my kind of Christianity. And that's okay. That's, if it's not, that's okay. There's, there's other places. There's great places you can go and, until you're ready for that. But you know something? I don't know what it is. Jesus in John 6 turns to his disciples. He's offended everybody. He has this massive, massive, thousands of people. Fill stadiums, Right? Jesus has one message and it's empty crickets. <laughs> like, Jesus, maybe we want to work a little bit on our PR here and the way you preach. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, are you offended also? Are you scandalized? Are you offended also? And, and Peter's like, big swallow and says, yep, that was offensive for me to hear that. But where are we going to go? We can leave, but we're not going to have, where are we going to hear these words? I mean, we're, you know, and that's, and, and that's what happens when our soul life, our flesh life, everything, uh, everything about our life is just crucified. And there's one thing that we're hanging on to, and that is really the Word of God. And I think God's going to test our relationships. He's going to test our motivations. He's going to test things because He just wants to bring it right down to this. Like, I'm not here 
because Pastor Chris is a great guy, or he's a super personality, or, you know, handing out money to everybody. I'm just here because, you know, the word is preached there. I'm not, you know, Billy's preaching, or Pastor Adam's teaching, whatever's happening. We're here because of the word of Christ, and that's what, that's what keeps us when we feel offended. There's no more toil. There's no more turmoil of battle inside our soul. We've bowed before the author and the finish of our faith in full submission to that which is finished. This is what it means to take up our cross daily. It just means when I'm offended, when I just want to check out, you know, when I want to do a soft, do a soft departure, it's okay. But cross means I've got to take up my cross. Guess what? We never, as a pastor, I never have to really worry about people in one sense. Like, I don't, I think sometimes a pastor can try to do the work of the Holy Spirit and be well-meaning, like, oh, we got to get on the phone with him, we got to get, get connected with him, we got to do something and work hard. Yes, we do pursue people, but there's a moment where we have to understand that these, a person is making their decisions, and guess what? You can't outrun the cross. You can't outrun mercy and grace. It's pursuing you every day of your life in, in Psalm 23. And it's fine. It's like, you just let, you let people go and you surrender them to God, and then guess what happens? God's free to, the cross eventually catches up. I mean, we can move to, we can move to places, and if you've moved to Texas here, I'm not getting on your case, but wherever we go, you know, we, we're like, we're going to find the cross, and, and we're going to find that God is working in us, and we're going to be face-to-face with, with the cross, and the cross doesn't empower my flesh to do a good war in the fight of faith. The cross, this is what the cross does. It totally bankrupts me and decimates my flesh so that I understand that there's no way that I can be godlike without the cross. The cross crushes your enemy. And I'm going to close with this. The cross crushes your enemy and shouts to you and I, be free. Walk in freedom. Don't walk in the bondage of the flesh. Follow me. And I'm going to, I, I, guys, I love poems. I love old hymns. And I'm going to just read this one line from, um, it was about 500 AD, 500 years after Christ, a guy by the name of Dallin Fargale. He was Irish and he wrote this hymn, Be Thou My Vision. We all know it, but just listen to these words. These words have been going through my, all, through my mind all week. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Be my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me. Don't be anything else to me except for who you are. Okay, I'm just translating from like old King James English. Save that thou art. And this is the line that was in my mind. Be my best thought. Be my best thought by day and by night. Be my best thought like that he would be the king and the Lord of every thought. Jesus, that you would just reign over every thought. That's my prayer be thou my best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping. Thy presence, my light. Amen. So let's play, pray. Father, thank you, God, that you have, you have won our hearts. You have united our hearts because you first loved us. And when, we were, when you gave the law and when you gave these commandments in the Old Testament and century after century after century of man failing God, Jesus comes on the scene. And he lays down his life. And he empties himself up. He empties his blood out for us. That he would show us that first love. Lord, we want to surrender to that first love. We want to stop trying to please you. God, we want to stop trying to fulfill the law. And we just want to give you that one thing that matters. And that's our heart, Lord. 
And that means that it's just a daily surrender to the Word of God and to the Spirit of Christ in our life. And I just thank you, God. And if you're here this, this morning and you haven't made a decision for Christ, you don't know where you're going to be after you die, or maybe you, you haven't ever believed on Christ as your personal Savior, just do that today. Just say, yes, God. Yes, Lord. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.